<clears throat> Before I start, I will apologize. Our trip to Meru, I have somehow managed to contract a, um, a bug in the throat. It has been a bit of a affliction for the past week. And uh, you will see me drink a lot of water through this. I apologize. I'm not dying of dehydration. I'm just honestly trying to get my throat to, to make this. <laughs> Before we pray, I want to. I appreciate Pastor Marungi's reading through those 17 verses. Before we pray, I would like to uh, reread quickly that, those texts because there's a list there that we're going to focus a lot of time on. But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Avoid such people. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly and Gracious Father, we, we come to you, lean on you, we eagerly open your word, we, we want to study and to know what your word would teach us this day. We would stand up and take note, for if you did not, did not love the church, you would not have sent the prophets, you would not have sent your son, you would not have given us warnings and, and cautions throughout your word of things to avoid, things to do of people to be wary of. Fathers, we're strived in this time and age where the evil men seem to be on the rise. Those who proclaim truth and even more so those who want to hear the truth seem to be in the decline. Father, we would ask that as we go through your word today that to the believers here, may they be encouraged. May they be Taught. May they be see the, the right way. To anyone here who is without Christ, Lord, would you be so merciful this day to grant salvation, to open the eyes. For what man can come to you if you do not first open his eyes? So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together that you've ordained a day of the week where your, your body gathers together and we are to worship you. It's in Christ's precious name. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this passage we're looking at today is the very reason we hold fast to expositional preaching, expository preaching. We go verse by verse because anytime you start seeing a list in Scripture, <laughs> men love to take bits and pieces of that and pervert it, twist it. Make it say what they will. Generally, this is out of context. Generally, this is, this is you, you, it, they don't incorrectly divide the word of God because they've read the entire chapter. No, rather they've read a portion of scripture. For instance, take the beginning of John 3.16, just the first half of John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Let's take all of Romans 8.28. 
For we know all things work to the good of those who love Christ, of God. How many times have you heard those things perverted? How many times have you heard those taken out of context? The universalists love John 3.16 to show, because they take part of it, and then they show that you, everyone is going to be okay. We're all going to, no one's really going into the depths of hell. But you have to read the entire scripture. You have to read all of Romans 8.28 to learn that it is not everything. What specifically is working for your good? It's your own salvation. It's not the Mercedes that you're hoping for in the driveway. It's not for the big house. It's not for the large family that, that um, turns profit after profit. So I would challenge you, if you're looking for a family devotion this week, you and the family sit down and, and read the first half of John 3.16. Read Romans 8.28. And then read all the verses that lead up to it and the several that come after it. And then discuss as a family, or if you're single, by yourself. Discuss how that you could see that we can rightly, incorrectly divide God's word. How we can pervert it. So it's not a surprise to you when you see men who stand up looking for their own gain. God did not write scripture topically. There isn't the book of hesitation, the book of hope, the book of salvation, the book of of don't do this, David. That's not what we see. We see it as a story told. We learn through the lives of people. We learn through the, the warnings and the prophets. Not just picking a topic we wanted to hear. Imagine reading C.S. Lewis, Mears Christianity. Imagine taking that book and starting, I don't know, chapter 10, and then saying, well, I'm going to go back to one, you, don't, you would never read anything like that. You would never rightly go through any literature that way. And not that Scripture is literature. It is the, is, the written, is the inspired Word of God. And not that we can't memorize verses for our own sake, because we do want to do that. We want to have those verses that are near and dear to us. I was, I was, my eyes were finally opened through Ephesians 2, 8, 10, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. To me this day, it, Absolutely near and dear to me. But you can take Scripture out of context. So let us be careful. Let us, we, as we go through this, because Paul says, understand this. This is a prophetic warning. This is a warning to the church. This isn't just a, a off-the-cuff. This Paul was given Scripture through the Spirit. He penned it in his, own, in his own words, yes. He put his touch, his flair, to, but it is God's word that he wrote. So when we see the last days, we have to ask ourselves, what is the last days? Some try and make this into a mystical term, a term where we read and we think of a very narrow period of time. You may have seen headlines of, of these pseudo-Christian literatures or, or publications. I know no one does magazines anymore. Online. Six signs of the last day. Ten ways to know Christ is close to return. But is that what Scripture really is telling us? Is it really telling us that 
we're to know God's time? When the apostles asked him, he says, not even the Son of Man knows, but the Father. So we're not just building up a, a mystical time to usher in. We, you have others then who will turn to trying to find a specific date, the last days. They may look at scripture. They may look at astrology, tarot cards, what, whatever that they use. I would imagine all of you are aware of books that have been written. And they've been written telling you, and I, there's a specific day. Christ's coming back September 11th. Well, that day is coming. That's another false prophet. But what we see in Scripture is this is time-held truths. This book, all 66 books, have countless prophecies. And all but one has fulfilled. The, the one we're waiting for is the return of Christ. So if all of those have been returned, let us trust in God to handle the future. Let us not worry ourselves and labor countless hours. What good does it do you? What good does it know to the, the exact day? Is it that you want to live a perverse life and then become holy on that last day, the three days before Christ returns? That's when you're going to clean yourself up? Is that your goal? You're misguided. It's not, it, that isn't how this works. This is a love of God. This is for the love of God is why we, we, we follow the faith. It is not so we can live lives our own way. And then at the last day, we, we spit shine our shoes, put on our best suit, and go outside prepare to meet Christ. These kinds of teachings that show that just show an absolute lack of Scripture, a lack of knowledge of God's Word. For we, we will read, <clears throat> but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly day of the Lord will, <clears throat> I'm sorry, and the heavenly day, uh, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and works that are done in it will be exposed. 2 Peter 3.10. Then again in Acts 1, 6-7. So when they had come together and asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So again, Christ is telling you, don't worry about the exact date. But latter times here isn't speaking to either one of them. Latter times is the time from Pentecost until the time of Christ. You say, how do you know that? How, how, how can we be sure of that? Is this not just another, another stab at dates? We have to look at Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Joel 2.28, we see the description of the last days. And the last days are described and marked out by when God pours his Holy Spirit out on all of mankind. Do you remember the story of Pentecost? They had left the upper room. Peter came out to preach God's word. And his sermon, all were there, Jews, Greeks, people from every, every nation were there. 
And that day, 3,000 souls were saved. God's Spirit had arrived. He has poured out His Holy Spirit at that day. And is by His Spirit is how we're able to see the truth in Scripture, how we're able to, to navigate and to understand, to come to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to put our trust and faith in Him. Not because of yourself. Because there would be boasting. Even faith, you cannot boast in your faith. Even that was given to you by God. So if Christ was returned, so if the beginning of last days is marked by Pentecost, I think we can, it's not a stretch. I don't think we need to go into great explanations that the last, the, the final day of the last days has to be Christ's return. It has to be the day that he comes in all of his glory with his angels. And he comes to judge the living and the dead. The day that Christ will appear in the sky. That is the day, the, la- the end of the last days. So we can see that when Paul warns us that the last days, he was living in them. He wrote them to Timothy knowing they were in the last days. We are in the last days. But don't concern yourself about wondering the very last days. And even depending upon your scripture, you will see this multiple times in this Bible, depending on the translation you use. It may, you may see an end of times. You see may, the end of days. It's used frequently. And in the New Testament, we see it referring to from the, the marking of period. Christ has gone to be with the Father, and we are waiting for him. We get to difficult times. In the last days, difficult times will come. And the Apostle Paul penned these words. Now let's think about the Apostle Paul for a second. What do we know of Paul? Paul was the great apostle to the Greeks. He was the reason that all of us sitting in this room, all of us non-Jews sitting in the room, have come to understand the Word of God because he was sent as the missionary, the great missionary. But Paul says difficult times. Let's review Paul's life for a minute. Paul was, on five separate occasions, Paul was lashed 39 times. And as we discussed in Sunday school this morning, one incident of that has killed many a man. Paul's endured that five times. Paul was stoned three times, one of which we know they left him outside the city gates thinking he was dead, that they left him for dead. He was betrayed by some of those who followed him, those who were near to him. He was shipwrecked. He was a bivocational missionary, apostle. He made tents to support the missionary and those who were with him. On his last day, it's generally agreed that when he was killed in Rome, it was by beheading. This is not a man who did not understand difficult times. A man like this comes in and says, let me warn you of the difficult times to come. We need to sit up and take notice. This is a man who understands difficult times. I apologize. 
So when he talks about these times, but it's not physical hardship. That's the, that's the interesting thing we see following this. This isn't a, a hard time. This isn't a time of drought he's warning us about. This isn't a time of, of wars or the rumor of wars. He's not talking about when the economic system falls to the floor and food prices go through the roof so that hardworking average families struggle to put meals on a table. He's not warning of that. He's not warning of, of, of affliction, personal affliction. He's warning about the church. He's writing to the church. The time, he uses difficult times, such strong language, and he's not referring, and he's referring to the church, his concern for the church. It's the very bride of Christ that he's concerned for. Because again, Paul was marked throughout his ministry, not concerned for himself. He, always, he was always writing back to, every time he would go and preach the gospel and plant churches, he was writing letters back to these churches and encouraging and, and instructing them in the ways, many of which have not, are not in Scripture. We know that Paul wrote many more letters. But he always had the heart of being concerned for the church. This was his great concern. So what are these difficult times? These difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And they then take on the appearance of godliness. They are not godly. They take on the appearance of godliness. But they deny its power. Avoid such people. These people are marked by their self-love. We have a list of 18 characteristics of the, of the man, woman, to be wary of. I think we can make a case that if we look at the first one, the first one on this, lovers of self, this does sum up every other one. For if you are a lover of self, lovers of money love money because they love themselves. They want to have nice things. They want to have a car. They want to have a house. Boastful. They love to make themselves look good, sound important, be the big man on campus. So they love themselves. They're arrogant. They love themselves. They think of them better, themselves better. Revilers. Disobedient to parents. How can a man follow and love God if he doesn't love his parents? Say, I love my parents. I just don't do what they tell me. Well, then you're a hypocrite and a liar. You cannot love, you cannot do the simple things your parent asks you to do, whether it be, I don't care what it is, I don't care the chore, whether it's washing dishes, whether it's cleaning your cleaning house, doing schoolwork, doing whatever, helping with the, the, the animals. 
How can you deny your own will and serve God when you are not willing to do the simple things that your parents ask you? How can you leave your parents to die in aloneness and in squalor while you live your, your life? For is not it much easier to do that than to daily deny yourself, to take up your cross? Is it not much easier to to cook dinner for someone than to be willing to be humiliated and to give up all that you hold dear personally and go do the will of God? The only conclusion to that is yes. (laughs) We cannot, we are ungrateful and holy. Ungrateful, you're not great. We all want, there are all things that that our natural flesh desires. And some are more extravagant than their wants than others. And again, we see that because we are a lover of self, we hold ourselves in a high regard. Irreconcilable or slanderous. Why tear someone else down? Why do they need to be made? Have you, if, if you believe you are a child of God and been forgiven of, of, of sinning against a holy God, how is it that you cannot forgive others? How can it you that speak evil of others? For were you not yourself once such a person? Malicious gossips. I think we, I, I, I can't imagine there's a church that's been throughout history that has not experienced the person who warns you of, of Mary Ann. Sorry, I'm trying to go with a name that isn't going to. <laughs> um, so Mar- it's not because they want to. They don't want to slander other people. They want to warn other people. That's not the proper, that's not the way Scripture tells us. If, we, if your brother sinned against you, you go to him and confront him. And if, you've, and if he hears you, you've won a brother. It is not to go behind each other's back. Lovers of pleasure. Now, here's a list. Now, that, that should conjure a whole list of things. Whatever it is your favorite. If when that, it's, all, it's a form of idolatry. It is, it is the love of something more than God. Fill in the blank. But we need to understand that this list of people still appear put on the form of godliness. This isn't the repentive person we're speaking about here. We're not talking about the, the, the one who comes in broken because of their sin. We're talking about the one who then does all they can to be, look godly, but be, be a lover of themselves. For the lover of yourself is what leads to all other sins. Have people like this not always existed, though? Why does Paul warn us? Why, have, have these such men, not, not men, women, been through us with the beginning of time? Was, is civilization unfamiliar with such people? Did we not read in Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God? What did God do? He warned him of his pride and arrogance. 
and told him to repent. Nebuchadnezzar repents, but for a short period of time. So he drives him into the field as, a, as, as he were an, a livestock animal, and his nails grow. He becomes a beast of the field. The Lord ends up restoring Nebuchadnezzar. But he is a perfect example of the boastful, arrogant, self-willed man. From the very beginning, right after we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 4. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and it's desire for you. You must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother. We see Cain as being unholy, of lover of self, without self-control, with being brutal. And you can apply many other, maybe in the entire list, <clears throat> to Cain. So let's not think that this list is somehow unique in its nature, that it is somehow that because we are in the last days that we are now dealing with men and women such as this. This list is not about men who are women who are acting boldly against the will of God. We've had evil, no shortage of evil men throughout history. The world has endured countless tyrants, countless murders. Mao of China, conservative estimate, 45 million civilians he was responsible for killing. Joseph Stalin of Russia, almost 40 million people. Adolf Hitler, 11 million non-soldiers. And we see lists like this, and everyone agrees, these are evil men. 99% of the pagan world will tell you these men are hard, hard people. You're not unique in the, in the Christian faith and understanding that such men as this are tyrannical. So what's the warning? What, what is the warning here? The people we read about are within the church. These, true attribute, these, these are their true attributes that they hide from us. This is the warning to Timothy, who is, who is a pastor. Who is leading the church? Who is Paul's successor? And it is to us. It's not, as, as Pastor Marungi said this morning in, in Timothy 4, that this isn't just for Timothy. This is for us. This is for all of the church. These people are dangerous because of their appearance of holiness while observing their own self-interest. The perilousness of this is the fact that they rise within the ranks, so to speak. They come in amongst us like wolves wearing sheep clothing. 
having the appearance of godliness while denying its power. But how do such people make this? How, how are they enabled? Where do they get this idea? Because this is a much more subtle thing than going and slaughtering millions. The people here we see are treacherous at heart. In 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, for such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Though it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deed. So what do we see here? We see that Satan has loves to take on the, the, the form of an, an angel. And anyone who is not in Christ, by default, is a child of the devil. You cannot have two masters. You are of God or you are of the devil. That, that's the option. Christ, Christ warns. We see Christ warn of this. We see Paul warn. Satan loves to take the appearance, this appearance, because it appeals to his own vanity. For as Christ tells us in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Where he lies, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So how can you be put on the, the appearance of godliness and not be a liar when you deny its power. The enemies used false prophets. We see scripture, Paul, we see, uh, we see Matthew, we see it in Mark, we see Peter, all warn us. Matthew 7, 22, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Again, Mark 13, 22. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. 2 Peter 2, 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies and denying the master who brought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. We're surrounded in a world of false prophets. Kenya, you have your fair share of false prophets. Since my month of being here, already my YouTube channel, only my feed, I now get feeds of, of, false pro of, of, of prophets that are, that are giving out warnings. They're, they're warning us of destructions to come, destructions in Kenya, out of Kenya. Of course, Scripture is never used in that. And that is always a telltale sign that when we don't use Scripture, when we use just our own words, our own craftiness, that's when we get into trouble. The apostles faced these very things during their ministries. That's why they warned us throughout Scripture that there will be those who come in amongst the church. There's things that they all have in common, all of the false prophets, all of the ones who, whether it be for the money, 
I, I would suppose that there has been some who have even just done it for the fame, or maybe even lesser. But they all have one thing in common. They're a lover of self and hater of God. Their motivation <clears throat> is that of self-interest. Their motivation is not for the love of the saints. They have no concern for you, brethren. They have no concern for the ones that they're leading astray. They are concerned in their own pockets about their own, about their own prosperity at the end of life. As we said today, we, in Kenya, I'm going to use a similar example. We, we, we're overlapping. Think of Timothy 3 as being what, what raises up, how the cult leaders raise up, how, how we see them come to power. Tim, in 4, we looked at after they come and the, their teachings. 3 deals with the fact that they're coming into power, that they are deceiving many. It, in 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 13, later on in this passage, indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. They come, warnings giving special revelation. They come with special knowledge. Throughout church history, this has been known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is simply the belief that a person or group of people hold special revelation or special doctrine given to them by God post, post the apostles. We see this in, in, starting in, in, in the second century of the church. We see this from very early on. And it is a, it's a plight that's never gone. They, they want to tell you how Jesus Christ personally has revealed himself. We see this in, Mormon, in Mormonism, again. They, deny, they tell you that the, book, the, Bibles were, the Bible has been corrupted. It is, it is now fallible. It is no longer without error. Jehovah's Witness. They have have special revelation. But let me ask you, the God of creation, the Lord of all, the one who created all things, who controls all things, the very God you are trusting for your salvation, you are trusting that he would preserve you to the last day and to be able to have the power to raise you on that last day. Do you not think he has the power to preserve his word? Do you not think that through the ages that he has the power to keep his message pure. Because if he has the power to raise you from the dead, does he not, can he not also keep his holy word pure? It's not that the word is pure. It's the fact that men distort it, perverse it. That evil men seek their own agenda. It cannot become errant. For God has put his hand on it. We have too much evidence even today between Dead Sea Scrolls, between, between archaeological digs of finding that all the things that they used to say were untrue come to find out 
were true. Isaiah was written, in fact, 400 years before Christ. So when you read Isaiah 52, 53, all of Isaiah, all the, all the, all the teachings of Christ, this was well before. God has always been able to keep his word. He called out Cyrus, the king of Persia, by name some 200 years before his birth. This isn't, this isn't a, a mystic, vague reading of the future. He calls out a man by name 200 years and says he's going to lead Persia. And that's pretty impressive. And it would be pretty foolish to think that that was happenstance. There's those who offer you God's healing at a cost. There's those who will sell you trinkets. They will tell you to to give to their ministry so you can be profitable. How ironic is that? That in order for them to raise money, they need you to give money to them so then somehow you're going to get money. The fact that that, that scam is still going on is absolutely... I mean, that might be the best peanut shuffle I've ever seen. That is just... We have the sad news that, again, in recent history, I too must bring up Paul McKenzie. And while Paul McKenzie was an evil man, still is, I don't think he's repented. The cold hard truth were so over his followers. And you may say to yourself, you may think to yourself, how can you say those poor people who who suffered through starvation, how can you speak ill of them? It's not my desire to speak ill of them, but it is my desire to point out to you the fact that they were lovers of self. Why did they do what they did? Why would a person starve themselves to death? Yes. According to Paul, that you are going to see, uh, Paul McKenzie, excuse me, you're going to see Christ. But there's way better ways to do it than starving yourself to death. I mean, have you missed three meals once and then you're like, oh my, you're praying for God to give you, to sprout up a fig tree. I mean, this is that you, you are, you are, uh, you are hungry. The hunger pains have set in. And these people, self willed starvation. I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine 120, I don't remember, the last I saw was 129 uh, people willfully doing this. So what's their motivation? Their self-love is that they're too good to live in the world that we live in. Their self-love is the fact that they don't have to put on the sufferings of the world. That they don't have to follow Christ and suffer as he followed, as he suffered. For if the master suffers, how much more the slave? How much more the pupil than the teacher? If one, if, if the greater is to suffer, will not the lesser also suffer? How can we expect a different outcome? How can we expect a different fate? We cannot. And the difference of suffering is, is going to range depending on, on the, how, what God has provided for you in your life. Additionally, these same people 
were very, had a very act, outward act of piousness. But they, choose, they chose so-called self-martyrdom. Why, why, why would you be a self-martyr? We're self-martyrs to make ourselves look good so that others will, will take notice. You can jump off a cliff. If, if, if death is the way to see Christ, you can jump off a cliff. It will be much quicker, much less overall pain. <clears throat> not that, please, this is not a recommendation from the pulpit that we go out jumping off of cliffs to meet Jesus Christ. Please, let's, let's make that clear. And the other part is some entered the church ministry with false piety, false godliness, because they're hoping to rise up within the ranks, if you will. The irony of that is, is that we're going to rise up in the ranks of a servitude that is overall tireless labor, much less thanks than you complaints or much more complaints than thanks. They choose to rise up for the, the noteworthy of men, the same way the Pharisees did. The same way the Pharisees loved to wear their long robes. They wanted to be noticed by men. So when you come to God in any other way except through his son, except through the cross, except when you try to come to Christ to any other way except the way that he's laid out, you're self-deceived and you think yourself better than the rest. You think yourself better than the millions, prayerfully billions that have gone before you that are now seated with him. The abusive and ungrateful are wolves in sheep's clothing, pretending to be holy, pretending to be lovers of others. They know how to use the terminology. They may have better theological terms than you have. They may know, they may put on outward prayers better than you. They, some can even give very credible testimony. To this church's credit, you, you, you vet your members. That if they stand up and give testimony, you're allowed to ask questions here and peek in behind the curtain. Not, many churches don't do that. That is a right step. But they will come in. They will come in under a false guise. They will come in their way. <clears throat> so how do we respond to this teaching? How do we respond to that to be warned of these people? The Christian life is not a life where you're saved, you sit down, you relax, you wait for Christ's return. You, you park yourself in your closet and you're just holding out, waiting for Christ to come back. That's not the Christian life at all. Paul does a wonderful job of equating the Christian life to a race. It's a, ra a race you must run. And this race is going to last your entire life. Because you're in a this race is representative of the battle of life. 
Yes, you're known by your love of the world and love of each other. And you are not to be lovers of the world. But you are in a battle. You are in a battle in areas where you don't even see, you're not even aware of. You're fighting an enemy that's far superior to you. However, and I do mean however, he, is in, he who is in you is greater than he is who in the world. So this is why some of the beautiful hymns, some of the, the battle hymns, Onward Christian Soldiers, I think we actually sung it last week, week before, I'm not sure, two weeks ago I believe we sang, Onward Christian Soldiers. It reminds us of the fact that we are to take up our armor. It is a reminder that we are in a battle. And that this battle is, is that we are to, inside our own church, look for those who are in the wolves among us. To, to search out. Because for what hope is there for the church? What are we to do? We're to be Bereans. Bereans, Bereans are always used as the example because they were, they were so diligent. They took the Apostle Paul and questioned his wording. They studied it. They didn't just take it face value. When someone's in the pulpit, we must hear not just hear what they're saying. When you allow someone to be in the pulpit continuously, you must evaluate their life day in and day out. And this doesn't mean you're spying, looking through curtains to make sure that Pastor Marungi, I, I don't I don't know, was watching a movie he's not supposed to watch. I, um, that's not what we're talking about here. But we are to evaluate the lives. Do your elders here, do they love their fellow brethren? Do they love you? Are they concerned for you? Do they look out for you? Are they concerned about the gospel going forth in the neighborhood? Are they trying to line their pockets? I know the answer on all, all counts. <laughs> and, and we praise God for that. We praise the God that he has put men in, 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 in eldership that faithfully preach the word and live the word. This is what we're talking about. We're not talking about just men who are falsely teaching God's word. We're talking about those who are in the pulpit and then yet live a hypocritical life. Those who go out and and are drunkards at the bar, who are, who are lovers of women beyond your wife. These are the men that, that do not live consistent lives with, with the message that they preach. This is how they're known. This is how we seek them out. And this is why we must evaluate. And not to destroy one another, but to encourage and to lift up. If you see a brother fall, we are to go to him in loving manners and confront him on the sin. Not so that we may, may make that person feel bad, but so that we may lovingly push them back to Christ. And that is the, the overall role of the elders in the church. The point to correctly guide the flock. Nobody can hold your hand when the veil comes down. That, when you pass through the river, that final river, when you go to meet Christ, nobody can go with you on that. People can hold your hand up until the time you close your eyes. Nobody can help you. This isn't based on a, a quick snapshot. This isn't based on the fact that we take a, a quick overview of someone's life. We, we, we invite them to church. 
and then judge them for a Sunday and say, they're in, they're in the faith. We are all evil at heart. We all love to make ourselves look better than we are. To a degree, we are all lovers of self, but in Christ, that, that, that the old has died. And in Christ, the new can come forth. The lover of God will present itself and be the foremost of how you are known. The lover of God is who you, will, who you now are in Christ. It is not who you were. It is now that you love God. You hate who you are. You hate the sin that is in your life. That is being the lover of God. That is being the lover that, that seeks God and cries out to him, why am I still the way that I am? Why have you not finished, perfect, bring, finished my justification? Or sanctification? My, your justification is finished. Your sanctification doesn't work. Churches sometimes will make an error, and sometimes it works out. For instance, they'll call elders outside of their own congregation. And this sometimes works, and, and sometimes churches are forced to do this. But this isn't what we see in Scripture. This isn't how PBC, I exhort you, because this isn't how you look to do it inside your own church. We're to raise within. But why are we to raise in? There are some very godly people. There are very godly ministers of the Word who are seeking pastoral positions. It's not because they're ungodly. But you don't know them. They're strangers to you. They may come and visit you for a couple weeks. And pray to God, praise God, many times it works out okay. But there's many times you go to conferences and listen to, to pastors and, and of, of the horrible experiences that they've had when they've tried to call that outside person. Come to find out that they were, they were hypocrites, they were liars, they were slanders. They didn't love each other. So we scrutinize each other. We scrutinize the, anyone who is going to be in the church, and especially so much more office holders in the church. We want to make sure that those are the people <coughs> are living according as they're called. For me, at my conversion, the biggest change that I had was the instant love of the brother. I, 12 years from time, hearing the gospel until salvation, by God's grace, I would go off and on to church, but it was always a bread I hated. But I was doing it to earn, I don't know, the various set of reasons. But the moment I became saved, I suddenly had this love. I suddenly had the love of the brethren. I suddenly cared. I was interested. That's how we know. That's, how, that's one of the marks where we know that we've died to self. That, that you're more concerned about making sure that, that your neighbor, that the one sitting next to you is, is doing okay. So I exhort you to live a life that is consistent with Scripture. If you're not, if you think to yourself, if, if God has convicted your heart and has, has pierced your soul and said that you are a lover of self, Repent while the Lord is still present, for there will be a day where he is not. There will be a day when he withdraws himself and he is no longer near you. Proverbs 
cry out unto him for mercy, for faith, to help you. And additionally, to those of you who are in the faith, stay vigilant, stay strong, run the race well. Be, be, ever, be ever looking, not critically, but lovingly at your neighbors as, and, and judging to make sure that the word is being preached faithfully. Be diligent. Don't, be, don't tire. For the race, is, the race is maybe 70 years. Maybe a little longer if you're lucky. And that seems a long time. But when you consider that eternity has no beginning and no end, that one million years into eternity is day one. Run the race well. Stay strong. Love the Lord God with all your heart. Pursue his statutes. Follow his commandments. May you love his entire word and may he protect his church from the ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly and Gracious Father, I, I again lift up to any here who is not in you that you would so lovingly come down and open their eyes. Father, would it be that today could be the day of a new birth? That all of heaven would rejoice in the repentance of one sin. Father, we pray for the continued protection of your church. We know that times will continue to get worse. You've told us so in your word. We know that there will be men who, who disguise themselves, much as our enemy disguises himself. Be with us. Help us to be ever vigilant. May the church stay strong. May the church be one who continues to endure and labor to be the good testament, testimony to the community. May we be, have a zeal to reach those who are lost. May we take pity on those who have been led astray and may we not to forget to minister to them. For it's easy for us to be judgmental and to think, that wasn't me. Father, that was us. We ask for mercy for them. We ask mercy, revelation, your glory be revealed to those of this Mackenzie cult and those others who are in Kenya throughout the land. Would it be that this is the day that you would start sending revival, start building a revival, for we know it can only come through you, through your spirit. We pray for that in the land. We pray that your churches may repent, the false doctrines may turn. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we, we can trust in you and that we are secure until the end, not because of us, but because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. It is in his name we pray.